Hi, this is John Williams, and this is Playing Politics, a weekly podcast in cooperation with WCCO Radio and the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Part of this podcast can be heard on my Wednesday afternoon show on WCCO Radio at 3.30. The entirety of this podcast can also be heard at WCCORadio.com and at StarTribune.com. I'm John Rash, columnist and editorial writer with the Star Tribune. I'm DJ Tice. I'm the commentary editor and a columnist at the Star Tribune. Hillary Clinton has pneumonia, and she didn't tell everyone. So is there a real health issue here? Is there a transparency issue? Neither or both? I think this is a lot less about lung x-rays and more about transparency. I think that the fact that she had this diagnosis, did not come forward with it, fits into a broader narrative when voters are asked where they have concerns and questions about how forthcoming she is or has been about not only her health issues, but of course the durable email scandal and the issues with the Clinton Foundation. And when people are picking a presidential candidate, this is something that clearly beyond policy comes into play. The most serious thing at this stage is that it plays into this sense that Hillary Clinton, you know, likes keeping secrets. But, um, you know, pneumonia isn't nothing, and health issues can be significant um, in political life. We've had uh, presidential situations where health became a factor. People say that Yalta went badly and the Cold War got off to a bad start because FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, was so old and infirm at the time. Uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, got the flu, the famous Spanish flu, when he was in Paris negotiating the Versailles Treaty, which famously turned out badly and uh, and led to World War II. Uh, and he later had a stroke, and his wife uh, secretly, more or less secretly, ran the country for the last year of his presidency. So, you know, health is, is not an insignificant issue, but, you know, barring some more information, there's there's more to be concerned here about the way this was handled than the fact that she's got pneumonia. If I don't tell you that I have pneumonia, is that me being secretive? Is that keeping a secret from the American people? I think that the way that it was handled, again, fit into how people perceive Hillary Clinton. I think it would have been perfectly understandable had she come forward and said, I've been on the campaign trail for a year now. I think that what we put candidates from both parties through is unlike anything in any Western democracy. And, and, you know, you look at great leaders of the past, Winston Churchill probably couldn't have kept up this pace, nor would have wanted to at this point. It would have been understandable to most voters that people are going to get under the weather at a certain point. And so I'm not sure, you know, that she had to have a full press conference. It probably would have been handled better had she announced that Indeed, she was a bit ill. She was going to take a few days off the campaign trail, and I think everyone would have understood that. Or at least just uh, say that, you know, she'd gotten this diagnosis and was going to have a reduced schedule for a couple of days, something like that, just to have it out there so that if she had a, a spell where she needed to leave an event, uh, that that people understood that. You know, in this day and age with the v- video so ubiquitous, they certainly have learned a lesson that, you know, nothing Uh, is out of sight. Well, that's the amazing thing to me. We have video from a distance of a 70-year-old woman getting a little dizzy, getting into a car after a schedule none of us envy, and suddenly her health is a votable issue. And I think that's a shame. Her health is as, (laughs) I guess, legitimate an issue as Donald Trump's is, but we really don't have any evidence that either of them would not be able to serve as president. 
And so then the question becomes, okay, well, should we ask the candidates to sort of turn over their health records or submit to a physical like we ask them to do with their taxes? What do you think of that? Well, Art Kaplan, a um, health ethicist who used to be at the U of M, University of Minnesota, is out in Pennsylvania now, I think. He's, uh, he's been out suggesting very, something very much like this, that the major party candidates should uh, either submit to a physical or at least turn medical records over to an independent panel of physicians who needn't go into every intimate detail, but can give the public some kind of assessment of the overall health of these candidates. And, and that's, that would be an option. You like that? I certainly think that that would be a good idea. I, want to, I certainly would hope for the country, though, that we don't get into a situation where this is a physical fitness test and we only have people of a certain age and a certain health level who feel that they're going to be taken seriously by the electorate. There is wisdom to be gained through the years, and we could use some of that in Washington right now. And so I hope that this doesn't become a disqualifying event for future presidential candidates. I think the devil's in the details on something like that. If we ask the physician that represents the candidate to turn over health records or submit a letter, that looks staged. So then you say, we'll go to an independent party. How much do they reveal? What if a candidate has an STD? What if they have maybe Parkinson's and it's early onset and they'll be fine? Should they reveal that? Should they be the gatekeeper on that? What is and isn't revealed? And then when they do, say it's carte blanche, we get all the information. Wow. So now the public is going to be voting with that in their sort of tool chest, and I don't know that those are effective tools. They aren't, they aren't easy questions, but what if they had an early stage of dementia? Is that something people ought to know about the person who's going to control the nuclear arsenal? Seems relevant. I don't know. It seems to me that if a president were disqualified or dead, then— and Hillary, by the way, as we record this, is still alive <laughs> if you're worried— um, you have the vice president. You do have an order of succession. Speaking of um, um, Hillary Clinton, anyway, she coined the phrase. I don't know. Was this in the sort of vocabulary of America before? A basket of deplorables. Have you heard of that before? If you, the candidate, are deplorable and the people at your rallies cheer you on, then are they, by extension, deplorable? Boy, we have come a long way in this country if, if, you know, this is the standard in which we we judge. And, you know, I think it's important to note that regardless who wins, Secretary Clinton or Mr. Trump, they not only have to win an election this early November, they have to govern a country for a minimum of four years. And so I think that this is as much a challenge of governing as it is winning the election at this point. And, you know, it's difficult to hold anyone to the standard that Abraham Lincoln set, but you know, you think of his second inaugural address, you know, where he said, um, with charity for all and malice towards none. And we are very, very far from that standard in this campaign. Are you surprised that she said that? I'm certainly surprised by the half of his supporters belong in the basket of deplorables, which I don't know. Is that one of Dante's circles of hell or something? <laughs> I never heard of it. But, uh, you know, I think politicians are always going to get in trouble when they start to pass judgment on the people. They should just never go there. Uh, they're always in trouble. Obama got in trouble with it, with the guns and uh, clinging to their guns. clinging to their guns and their what? Their Bibles and religion. Or, yeah, and religion, religion right? he said. Mitt Romney had forty-seven percent. Mitt Romney's forty-seven percent. Um, and all of these were at fundraisers. They right. seem, when they're in front of friends and supporters, 
to become a little less disciplined in front of the microphone. And as DJ so accurately pointed out, there is nothing that happens when they're outside the door of their home that isn't being recorded either directly or surreptitiously. So I think it's striking that uh, candidates continue to make these types of gaffes. They can say virtually anything they want, especially you know now that the post-Trump era, about one another. Uh, but they can hardly say anything uh, derogatory about the people and get away with it. Maybe that's a little bit silly, you know, because they're they're not entirely wrong about the people all the time. But it's always bad politics. Well, that's where the story is going late this week, then, is. She says it over the weekend, and as the days go on, more and more people are starting to dig up the surveys that said, well, what percentage of people who say they will vote for Donald Trump believe that Barack Obama is a Muslim or not a citizen or that LGBTQs should not enjoy the same rights as the rest of America? And there's a litany of these sorts of assessments of those people which are, quote unquote, deplorable. So, so now they're saying maybe she wasn't all that wrong. <laughs> you can debate that. You know, it, it may, sure. it's maybe a silly debate. Where's the discipline from the Clinton campaign? What was she thinking when she said that? And if she does feel this, why isn't instead her perspective that she wants to change these hardened hearts and she wants to bring people around to the type of thinking that she thinks is a better reflection of America? And, you know, so there's the discipline issue for sure, but there's also the internal discipline of what do you think of of people out there? So I think that's what disappointed even many of her supporters and certainly enraged many of Mr. Trump's supporters. Ever since Bill Clinton walked across the tarmac to the attorney general's plane, we've just seen the sorts of things from the Clintons that I thought they wouldn't do. They're smarter than that politically. They are not running a particularly uh, graceful and and sophisticated campaign, uh, you know, making lots of uh, repeated blunders. And I don't know, partly it may be that Trump knocks people off balance. He is so unconventional. He dominates the news cycles over and over again and and, and with the most outlandish yeah. material that just just as he kept his Republican opponents completely befuddled uh, most of the time and flailing around trying to figure out how to respond to him, he seems to be having some of that effect on, on Hillary Clinton. And that being said, what also may be happening much below the radar is at least from the professional aspects of the campaign, not, not necessarily message or even candidate discipline, but people on the ground, people identifying individual supporters, some of the innovations then-Senator and eventually President Obama brought in the 08 and 2012 campaigns. By all accounts, Secretary Clinton's campaign is quite good at that. That might ultimately make the difference, particularly in swing states, and might end up, it might result in her being elected president. I think you may be onto something, DJ, too, in that when you consider the sorts of phrases or tweets that have escaped Donald Trump, Hillary must have felt this was a pretty comfortable phrase to turn. It reminds you a little bit of that moment back in the primaries when Marco Rubio tried to out-Trump Trump and, you know, took on the, the insultorama style. It didn't work at all for him, and it, it may not work for, for her either. I think part of her the trouble is that is that the press is is on her case too. And unless she's got them talking about Trump, then they're talking about her in a way that's not very comfortable and all these various issues. So we're really in a funny election where neither of these candidates can survive a referendum. So the battle is to make it a referendum on your opponent and not very much about you. Did you guys know where Aleppo was, by the way? This is a little dated, but, you know, we wondered if Gary Johnson wasn't going to be sort of the inadvertent kingmaker here. 
maybe he's less relevant now. His numbers actually haven't fallen off that much, but he famously told Morning Joe he didn't know not only where Aleppo is, he didn't know what Aleppo is. Well, you, you'd you be better on this, John, because you do a lot of uh, live radio. I mean, I, I certainly knew what Aleppo was, uh, and especially in context, I think I would have known. But I don't know when you're in a stressful situation doing an interview, lots of questions coming at you. Could you have a, a brain cramp and just for the moment, you know, what are you talking about? Yeah, I do all the time. And the, and the you know, defense of that or the criticism of what you just said, though, is that I'm not running for president. So we get, but we do ask them to be superhuman, don't we? You can't catch a cold. You can't get pneumonia. You can't not know what you meant when you said Aleppo. The next day he said he thought it was an acronym like LMAO. Were those letters or was that a word? He wasn't tracking. Except there's this, you know, that when during the campaigns, we do an awful lot with debates and the constant interviewing and so on where that, that, that quickness off the cuff. You know, the extemporaneous eloquence becomes like job one. It really isn't that big a part of the presidency. Isn't that interesting? Once you're president, you're pretty well scripted. Particularly with Aleppo, this indeed is the epicenter of the Syrian crisis and the broader Middle East and now the Mediterranean migration crisis. And to not at least be aware of that, let alone as a presidential candidate, the idea is he's supposed to have some sort of idea on how to lead a global solution, or if his position is that the U.S. is, to a certain degree, libertarian perspective, should not be in this part of the world at all, he should at least understand what what is happening in that part of the world and perhaps why he wants U.S. forces to withdraw. And so I think that in many ways it showed his candidacy is all about, and has been all about his candidacy and not necessarily about finding solutions for the problems that vex the country and the, and the world. Speaking of that, so the United States is flying B-1 bombers and escort fighters over the South Korea-North Korea border in cooperation with South Korea. Smart play, bad play, what are we, what are we thinking about this? That certainly we have allies that we have longstanding commitments uh, with throughout the region, in particular South Korea and Japan, and showing that you know, we stand with them and that we are ready to honor those defense commitments is something that a president of either party would do. And it also is sending a direct message to China that if they don't put the pressure on their only true, you know, North Korea's only true ally, that we may be forced to ramp up our military involvement and indeed introduce new, at least defensive weapons in, onto the Korean Peninsula and in, onto, into Japan as well. You know, many observers have long thought, John and DJ, that this is going to be the first true foreign policy crisis for whomever is elected next president. It may not wait that long. There's a lot of intelligence that suggests that they're ready for yet another nuclear test, perhaps on a key date of um, that, which is when they often time these for, which would be before the election. So this is something that should be much more the debate out on the campaign trail, as opposed to some of the more campaign-oriented issues that have yeah, dominated right. no the kidding. scenario. I mean, think about that. I wonder if at the debate or if Hillary said, okay, Donald Trump, what would you do about North Korea, South Korea? What what should be our next step? Well, I think that strategically that would be a very smart uh, foray for her uh, to put that to him and, and see if he wouldn't make a mistake. <laughs> so just political strategy. One would hope that this is something where politics would end at the at the the water's edge uh, and I agree with John uh, this is a, a, st- a scary situation and we need to make sure 
that people in North Korea understand what the stakes are, and we just have to hope that they're not completely crazy. Donald Trump's name almost did not appear on the ballot in Minnesota. The state Supreme Court decided not to hear the DFL's case against them, even though they may have had a case against them. Is that your read on that, DJ? What do you think about that story? Well, my sense is that the court you know, took the easiest route to resolving the matter, which was to say you waited too long to to file. I think it's highly unlikely that had they go- reached the merits, uh, they would have kicked Trump off the ballot. I think it was kind of a fantastic stretch to suggest that it can ever have been the legislature's intent that a major party candidate would not appear on Minnesota's ballot if the state party made a procedural mistake in naming alternate electors. That There's a doctrine of statutory construction that the legislature does not intend an absurd result. Uh, it, it, you know, it's sort of the control-all-delete button for courts. That's and a I good think way to put it. it yeah. Are you on the same page? I, indeed, I am, and I think that this was politically and legally ill-advised. DJ just well pointed out the legal issues. Politically, Democrats nationally and the DFL here at home have had have made a consistent part of their message to expand voting rights throughout and to push back against any, you know, uh, laws or, or any efforts to keep fewer people from voting. And this muddles the message in that had they been successful, it wasn't necessarily directed at individual voters going to the polls, but it could have disenfranchised the possibility of a whole lot of Minnesotans for voting for the presidential candidate of their choice. You don't think the DFL should have pursued this? I do not think they should have pursued this. I think that uh, certainly um, I wish that the Republican Party would have been able to avoid this because I think that it, it showed you know, some challenges, internal challenges that they have. But I think that the legal remedy that they were seeking far superseded the relatively minor aspect of the infraction. Kellyanne Conway, Donald Trump's campaign manager, said she doesn't think that people actually care about Donald Trump's taxes. She said, I can't find the polling on it, and we internally are polling and don't find any interest in Donald Trump's taxes. People really don't care about that. Do you agree with that? You know, I suspect that a lot of people uh, aren't, you know, just panting to see Donald Trump's tax returns because they have no idea what might be in it. Now, once we saw them, if there was really interesting stuff in there, I think they would become pretty interested in that in that information. In the abstract, uh, maybe not so much. But obviously, when you see a candidate reluctant to reveal the tax returns, it must be because he thinks there's something in there that people might find interesting. And her explanation is often what campaign aides say when they don't want to give an answer or don't want to address an issue. And I certainly think that this, you know, is in the public interest for people to know this. And it also breaks decades of precedence, Republicans and Democrats, who have released their tax returns. So it's yet again another aspect of the extraordinary, unconventional nature of this election. There's no law requiring them to release their finances. No, uh, there's not. And and for that reason, he may just be able to tough it out. But it, that's why the media, I, in my opinion, needs to keep bringing it up, tiresome as it becomes as a, as a point of discussion, uh, you know, because the voters need to make a judgment about it. What does it mean that he won't do this? You know, we had something of a tussle with, with Romney, as I recall, who was also very slow and reluctant to to release um, the full 
tax returns. When it came out, there wasn't anything that exciting in it. He actually gave a lot of money to charity, but he only paid, what was it, 15% or 12% or something like that. And that interested people, at least for a few days. Which is the rate Mike Pence is paying at, by the way. Clinton's taxes show that she, she and Bill Clinton pay 30 to 40, sometimes more, 30 and 40 percent. Uh, Pence paid uh, between 10 and 15, and Trump brags that he pays as small a tax bill as he can. I, I've often wondered what could be in there that, in fact, would be really injurious to Donald Trump. Well, certainly there has been some speculation about his global business involvement and to the degree that some of it may involve Russia, as an example. And this isn't me making an allegation. It's the type of question that gets raised if he doesn't release them. And there has been a whole lot of discussion about Donald Trump's comments regarding Vladimir Putin and Vladimir Putin's compliments towards Donald Trump. And so that's the type of thing that can be revealed through release of tax returns and partly why, if indeed the public isn't overly concerned, the media certainly is as their surrogates. The uh, uh, charitable giving is something if it's, uh, you know, if it's paltry. That, uh, that might be interesting and, and damaging to him. There's a lot of things that could be in there. That's DJ Tice with John Rash from the Star Tribune. I'm John Williams from WCCO Radio. This is Playing Politics. You can hear part of this podcast each week on WCCO Radio. And depending on where you're listening to this now, remember you can always catch it at startribune.com and at wcco.com.